and welcome to the Books on Asia podcast, sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of Fine Books on Asia for over 30 years, located at www.stonebridge.com. And I'm your host, Amy Chavez. And today I have with me Barry Lancet, author of the Jim Brody thriller series of four books, starting with Japantown, Tokyo Kill, Pacific Burn, and his most recent one, The Spy Across the Table. Welcome, Barry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to finally meet you. I have to thank you for something, and it's four years late. Okay, whatever it may be. But thank you for introducing me to the guy at Good Day Books. All right, Steve. Steve. Right, yeah. Yeah. Because he was looking for authors to come and speak at his uh, bookstore. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had recommended me because at that time my book, uh, Running the Shikoku Pilgrimage, had come out. And um, so that was really nice. It was nice to hook up with him. Shame about the bookstore, though. Well, he retired. That happens. (laughs) Oh, is that what happened? He and his wife retired and they they moved back up to Northern California, which is not a bad place to be if you're not in Japan. Well, that's nice to hear because I just thought it, you know, maybe went the way of all the other bookstores. They, They had that going for. I don't know, 30 years or something? Yeah. Bookstore, yeah. Yeah, it was classic, wasn't it? It was a great bookstore, yeah. So right now we're in the office of Juliet Winters Carpenter at Doshisha, and uh, she's not in right now, but allowed us to use her office. You know Juliet from Kodansha International when you worked there, right? Right. I was editor, acquisition editor, then editor-in-chief, yeah, Mm -hmm. for the whole stretch. And then... I worked with her first on a book called The Art of Rosangin, now called in paperback Uncommon Clay. That's how we met. And then after that, I don't know, we probably worked on 10 or 12 books wow. together over the years. Quite a number, including a, a collection of Kubo Abe short stories, a couple art books. We did Sarara Kinembi, Salad mm-hmm. Anniversary by Tawara Machi. That was a lot of fun. And uh, any number of things across a, a wide range of topics. And who did you work with at Codentia International? A number of people. Each project was a project-by-project basis. I mean, I was in-house editor, but you sort of picked a co-editor, a Japanese co-editor, to help with that side of things, depending on the topic of the book. So I probably worked with, over the years, six or seven different editors. And how many authors? I don't know. Authors, translators, illustrators, photographers. I don't know how many. Altogether, there was about two or three hundred, I think. So was it when you were working there that you decided that someday when you had time, you wanted to write a thriller? Well, actually, that kind of came about when I was back in California at Berkeley at school. I decided, you know, hey, this writing thing's kind of interesting. I got very interested in writing books, actually, instead of just reading them or editing them. And I thought one day, if I had a subject I thought was interesting, I might write something. And so the idea was always in the back of my mind, but I, did, I knew I was, I was smart enough to know I didn't have a subject that I could really dig into. And then uh, I traveled about quite a bit, and a few years passed, and I came to Japan for the first time. And I thought, well, Japan, maybe I could do something about Japan. I didn't want to do nonfiction. You know, there's so many people at the time. It was Donald Ritchie, Donald Keene, Seidensticker, and a half a dozen other people writing great nonfiction books. Uh, William Scott Wilson, uh, people like that. So I didn't want to um, 
do anything along those lines. So I thought, well, if I could do something along the fiction line. And at first I was thinking contemporary, contemporary literature. And then two things happened. One is a short time after I got here, about 14 months after I got here, I got a late night phone call from the police asking me to come down for a voluntary interview, quote unquote, the next morning on Sunday morning at the police station, not the Koban, the police station wow. in uh, Tamachi in, in central Tokyo. I had no idea why. And actually they called my house when I wasn't there. And my wife, at that time, I think we, at that time we were living in the same, we shared a phone. Phones were expensive back then, you know, it was like. They were, They were, yes. I, think it was, I think it was about $800 just yep. to get a line, something mm -hmm. like that. So we shared the line with her f folks, pre-cell phone days. <laughs> we shared a line with her folks who had uh, a phone downstairs. We had a separate uh, apartment upstairs. And uh, so they called that number and my father-in-law answered. And I was out after work drinking with friends. And when I came home, I sort of faced this firing squad of three angry people, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and my wife, accusing me of doing something outrageous because the police had called their house, which for an upright Japanese family never happens, right? right. And so they said, what did you do? And I said, nothing. I didn't do anything. I said, you must have done something because the police just don't call for no reason. And uh, I said, I have no idea what I did. I don't, I'm sure I didn't do anything. Well, the police want you to come down for an interview. And boy, everybody went to bed angry that night. <laughs> That's how my interest started in mysteries and thrillers. So what did you do? What, what was your infraction? I went down there and they took me to... They took me back into an interrogation room, and uh, when I first came no out, at that way. time I didn't speak. I didn't speak any English, uh, Japanese at that time. I spoke, you know, maybe three, four hundred words in about a half a dozen, two dozen sentences, whatever it was, and not enough to really deal with the police or anything like that. I mean, I can now with no problem, but back then I couldn't. And so I showed up at the station, and the desk sergeant called back, and out came this huge Japanese guy in uniform snarling at me and grunting and waving at me and jabbering at me in Japanese which I you know I sort of threw back a syllable or two and he just waved me into the back took me into the back down a couple hallways and put me in an interrogation room and slammed the door shut right and left me there for 45 minutes Wow! and then the door opened up and in came a immaculately dressed silver-haired man, you know, with a suit and a tie and a white starch shirt, and he was an inspector and a police inspector and my interrogator. And then for three hours, they interrogated. Five minutes into it, I said, would you mind telling me why I'm here? He says, well, we'll get to that later. Oh and he wouldn't tell me. And then, uh, and they, this guy spoke English. And, and so there was, you know, those days, and even now, there aren't that many people that speak English, and his English was pretty good. And so he, he ended up having to play good cop and bad cop at the same time. And he was very shrewd, he was very clever, and there was a lot of psychological ploys behind sure, his questions. Yeah. And basically what I realized in those days, I, I'd had a, I got a permanent visa, but I had a special cultural visa at that time still, or a working visa. And I realized that if I didn't answer these questions right, they were going to throw me out of the country. I don't know what I did or anything, but I knew it. I realized this was a very delicate line I was walking. And he began asking questions, and I got, for the first five minutes or so, I was kind of angry and frustrated because his questions, you know, he was asking these questions. But then I kind of grew really, really interested in, in the way he was asking the questions. 
and, true writer. And and how he how he phrased them and the order he used and how he would switch tone and switch topic suddenly without warning. He was he was playing all these kind of there were all these kind of clever mind games going on. And I had studied psychology back in really? college, so I knew well, lucky you. a few of these things. I knew a few of what was going on. And he just kept going and going and going. The questions got very personal. He asked me about my life in Japan, my life back in the States, my wife, my old girlfriends, my bank accounts in the States, what I did, if I, you know, and he wanted to know everything. I didn't want to answer a lot of the questions, but I said, well, what the hell? You know, I'm way over here. And, and by the time he was done, he knew more about me in some areas of my life than my parents did or anything like that, you know. After three hours, they let me walk. And I went out. And when I got out, I thought, Suddenly, and it hit me just a couple of minutes after I walked out the door, I said, you know, maybe I can write a novel and it can be a, a thriller or a detective story or something like that involving the police because that three-hour interview really changed the way I look at Japan because I saw, for the first time, I saw behind the facade, you know, what else they're thinking. And what they, because the questions give away a certain amount of their mindset. And that's when I first began to see several layers down. And, and mm -hmm. you know, of course, it takes years to be able to do that. And that's the first yes, thing that started true. started me thinking about mysteries and thrillers. So why did they take you in there? It did you turned, ever figure it out? Oh yeah, they told me at the very end. It turned out that it was a non-criminal visa violation. It turns out that in those when you renewed your visa after a year, I had to renew it. Uh, you go down to the uh, immigration office, which was a which was a terror of a place back then, and. Um, after that, you're supposed to go into your local city office and tell them, and fill really? out a form and tell them. But they, you know, there, it was probably written somewhere that, that uh, you should do that, but I didn't know. But that gave them the right then to bring me in when I didn't take that last step, which is kind of an official but unofficial step. It doesn't really affect your visa. And what I, what I figured out eventually, and I think I heard this from somebody else as well, is it allows them, if you don't do that, they have the right to call you in, and, and they can really rake you over the coals and they can decide if you're undesirable, riffraff, whatever. And if you are, they can gently show you the door. Wow. Fortunately, I passed the tests, whatever they were. They let me stay. and uh, But that's what got me interested. And those in. are the seeds of Jim Brody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One of the, the, the main Inspector Kato that appears in the series comes from that encounter with that inspector. And Brody's sidekick, Noda, who's this big, unsociable, impolite Japanese fellow came from the guy who escorted me into with oh, really? grunts and, and snarls and all that. Which was based on him, partly. Right? I actually kind of liked Noda. <laughs> He's really popular, yeah. Well, that's where, that's where he, the seeds of that character came from. He's very, very popular, yeah. Very insouciant Japanese that, that everybody loves, but the Japanese sort of put up with, right? Right. Everybody else besides the Japanese like him. <laughs> well, there is a very interesting line that you had said, which is similar to that, about how the uh, the foreigners found the person to be so nice and open and just coming out and saying things, but the Japanese only tolerated him for that. That's right, yeah. yeah. He's, he's sort of the anti-Japanese Japanese. He, right. he can't be bothered with all the social niceties. <laughs> Actually, that that's another thing I enjoyed about the book is that when you live here, you're so used to everyone being so polite, and people don't really just let down their guard. Mm -hmm. um, and if they do, it's because they're really good friends, and you know, it's not the average person. Where us foreigners, we meet and we tend to be in an hour, we're best friends, right? That doesn't really happen in Japan. 
not in the same way anyway. So when I read your books, I kind of feel like, oh, everyone's just so normal. <laughs> <laughs> Even though no one really has good things happen to them, it seems. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, good, I'm glad that they seem normal. They seem real people, I guess. Is what real people, yeah. exactly. That's what it is. Mm. When you sat down to write Japantown, did you want to write a series Actually not. I didn't think about a series, just about a single book. Yeah, I kept my focus there. Because I started with Japantown, with the mm -hmm. series, because I thought it would help lay the groundwork. And I didn't know if I could just pick up The Spy Across the Table and be there. They're all... It's a series character, but I've written them all so that they're, they're standalones. In other words, you can pick up any book in the series and uh, start any place. And there's enough background information that they stand alone. Some people are religious about reading from the first book in the series, and you certainly don't have to. I'm really interested in someone who writes a series. And the reason is because there are so many authors who write uh, lots of books, but they're all different. And then I think one of the mistakes that us writers often make is we don't write enough. We tend to like publish a book and then, you know, some people, years later, they're still flogging the same book. But you really need to move on and go to the next book and the next one mm -hmm. and the next one. And to just have that option with a series, and there must be this great maturing process as a writer that goes along with that. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I have a lot of author friends uh, stateside now, and uh, some of them write one-offs all the time. That's all they can do. But... I like the idea, this has become a series, and I like the idea because I have this whole world already set, and I can add to it and layer it as I wish, right? And I find that very uh, engaging. But I have other friends who just, they, they need to create a whole new set of characters every time. When I was going through the third or fourth draft of Japan Town, somebody said, are you, are you writing a series or a one-off? And I said, well, it's, I'm, I wasn't thinking about a series, I was thinking about just one book and but after they asked that question I thought well you know what if somebody wants me to make this was the publisher wants a second book with the same character and so I left some things open and I left it open-ended enough so that it could be a series if needed be and as it turns out when Simon and Schuster offered me a contract they offered me first it was a one book contract but before we signed it and the agent was negotiating somehow it got around to well, let's make it two books at a, at a better price but it's got to be the same character. And so there it was. Mm -hmm. They said Jim Brody has to be in the second book as well, which I didn't have any argument with. And uh, so his name is in the contract, actually. I think it's above my name, too. So <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it seems that there was an awful lot of groundwork laid in that first book, and there are so many characters that could appear again, mm -hmm. even you know, minor ones. Yeah, a number of them have. Uh, sometimes they appear, a couple of them appear in all the books, all of the books, his daughter, Noda, um, but several of them maybe skip a book and then they show up again, yes. So the daughter grows up? Yeah, she's growing up. She's, I'm sort of aging her slow, a little bit too slow. I realize now I wish I would have aged her a little bit faster. And so I just wrote a short story called Three Star Sushi. I did it, it was a, it was a cover story for a, an anthology. I added a couple extra years onto her life <laughs> very quickly in the short story. So Isn't that great that yeah. you can do that? Yeah. Yeah, well, those were the, I think, the most touching moments of Japantown were, was when, is when Jim Brody's with his daughter. That's when we see that he's a real 
human being because he seems mm. to be a superhuman <laughs> other times. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the early drafts, uh, she wasn't there. He was just a single guy. And then I realized he, he was getting a little bit too hard-boiled. The early first draft was a sort of hard-boiled thing. And I realized it wasn't quite right. And so I decided to make him medium-boiled. I didn't want him to have, I didn't want him to be married and have a wife and have to deal with all that. And uh, so I made him a widower uh, with a daughter. I, I just thought well, the kid in the way was, she was, you know, you know, she died also comes into the book as well. Yeah, so yeah, his wife. <laughs> yeah, she's there. So one reader said, well, you know, you don't have enough women in your book. And I, and I said, well, the heroine is his wife. She kind of saves him in a certain way, in a very unexpected way. And so she's part of the book. The later books have a lot more women. Each book, there's more and more women, and uh, they're fun to write, too. I have to sort of catch up on my fashions. But uh, that was one of the things. If you find out when you write a book, and there's so many different types of scenes, you find out what you don't know very quickly. And, and that's part of the growth that you know a writer yeah. goes through as they do the series. Mm-hmm. And um, So is it easier to write them now? You know what? It's funny. It's not easier at all. You hope it will be. But what does happen is I always raise the bar. I always want to. I don't want to repeat what I did before. I always want to write something better and with higher goals. And so I set the bar higher with each book. I mean, I always set the bar as higher as I can go at that time. But after you finish a 400-page book and you spend a year of your life doing that, you suddenly have more tools than you had before. And then the next book, you can raise that bar again. And that's what I do with each book. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. So it doesn't get easier surprisingly. Being sometimes a lazy fellow that I am, you know, I I, I kind of say, why do I keep doing this? (laughs) One of the scenes I really liked in Japantown was the scene when the guy goes out for a swim in the ocean. Because I'm on the sea as a sailor, and sailing at night is, you know, can be very scary. You see things, you feel things, or something hits the bottom of the boat, and you start thinking of these monster movies and (laughs) such. And so, and that was just so unexpected that, you know, this guy would go swimming and... It's a beautiful, I I mean, I was there uh, in 2000, we were out in Italy, and so that's Mm -hmm. where, you know, I first ran across the place in the Mediterranean there, and it just made a good, it seemed to be a good good place to set that particular scene. He relished his midnight swims. On the Cobalt Sea, the world seemed endless, the possibilities infinite. When he returned to France, he would crush that scheming Spanish rodent, and he knew exactly how. As a feeling of satisfaction overtook him, and he smiled to himself, powerful arms encircled his waist, and then vanished, leaving in their wake a strange heaviness at his hips. And I won't say what happens, but that was just weird. And that's just the beginning of that scene, yeah. I was surprised. Can people really hold their breath for three minutes? Some people can. Um, It takes training if you're good swimming. I I swam a lot in high school, being from California. I think I got up to about two and a half minutes, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, you can. can It's like anything else. You can train yourself for a long time. And I mean, that scene is set somewhere towards the first third of the book, is that right? Or Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle of the book. It's a third-person interlude where Jim Brody is starting to put the pieces together about who might be behind the murders that happened in the opening chapter. He's got a few clues, and then somewhere later on, it shifts to this scene where it shows the people who were behind the murder, how they take care of 
certain victims. A lot of people come to me. Somehow that scene seems to be very memorable. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> it's very disturbing, actually. I thought the there's another scene with a Swiss banker. I thought that one would be the one everybody um, remembers a little bit more, but um, this one outranks that. Now, The Spy Across the Table, which, by the way, is a great title. I just, I just love to say it over and over. The Spy Across the Table. <laughs> and you were telling me before that it has a little bit, there's a little bit of North Korea in this, mm -hmm. a little bit of... Yes. So the book opens in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. There's a command performance of Kabuki going on. So there's a lot of Washington VIPs there. And Brody's been invited to attend because he knows somebody involved in the production. And he has, he has work there uh, with one of the local museums. He's trying to sell us some pieces. So he combines the trip. He goes out there. And he brings a friend along who really wants to meet somebody there. And so he's watching the Kabuki performance from the wings. And that's how the story starts. Can I read that section? Sure. My old college buddy and I stood in the wings of the Kennedy Center's Opera House Theater, watching a kabuki play unfold in front of a sold-out crowd. VIPs were abundant. Mikey was starstruck. Her costume and makeup are perfect, Mikey said in a low voice. Is that really a man under there? Yes, I said. Early in 17th century Japan, the shogun famously banned women from the kabuki stage. The elegantly clad females proved too much of a temptation for aristocratic samurai who were expected to set an example for the common people by staking out society's moral high ground. Over time, the long-standing men-only policy evolved into a tradition that persists to this day. Mikey remained incredulous. Kabuki troops wasted no time in seeking men with the prowess to play women. Costumes were upgraded, makeup was subtly altered, gestures demure and flirtatious were endlessly practiced and refined, then perfected. The Kabuki experience reached new heights. Even today, Kabuki continued to win converts. The muffled sound of a gunshot reached my ears during the fireworks scene and momentarily my thoughts strayed from the spectacle before me. Well, I'll give you the book and you can... Um, Are you sure? Uh, yeah, this is, this is an advanced reader copy anyway, so... Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You'll have to sign it for me. Okay. Yeah. Do, do it now. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So... Yeah, when I when it when it came time to sit down and write uh, the spy across the table, I was of course still living in you know I live in I live in Japan in Tokyo, and I sort of looked around to see what was going on here, and what was happening was China was sort of getting very mil militaristic, and they were it was right around the time when they started taking the islands in in the in the in the sea and building military bases, and North Korea was acting up again. So I thought, well, I'll write about that because. I always get asked questions, you know, what's going on with China? What's going on with North Korea? What's the story? And what are the political leaders really thinking? And it's something I happen to have followed for a long time as well. So this story involves not only Japan this time, but Brody starts in Washington, D.C., and then he ends up, after, after, a, a major, after his, his friend gets shot, 
in D.C. at the Kabuki performance, which you just read about. He ends up, he has to find out what went on, and that takes him back to Japan and then on to South Korea, the DMZ, China, and elsewhere as he tries to figure out what's happened to his friend. And uh, it's all interconnected with something going on with North Korea, who his friend just happened to step in the way of. That's how it starts. And so you get people get a picture inside the framework of a kind of ongoing action and story uh, what's really going on behind the scenes in China and North Korea and how they really think about each other and their nuclear powers. And, and I finished the book and probably two weeks after it came out, everything started erupting with North Korea and Trump and all that. So it was a perfect sort of way for people to really see, people who read it said, oh, now I see what they're talking about and why China is saying this and why North Korea is saying that. So there's a good chunk of Japan in it as well. And he's sort of a dragged along this time. You know, he's not a dumb guy and he knows quite a bit about Asia, but he's in over his head because he's suddenly in the world of espionage, which is not his territory and wasn't his father's either. But he's sort of trying to keep his head above water. It's, uh, it's different from that way. Well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'll get on to reading that as soon as possible. Oh, I have a story for you, too. Mm. <laughs> I was reading your book on the Shinkansen, and you were talking about cybercrime, which you know, I'm very interested in. Uh. Yeah. So then, of course, that um, they came on and they said the next stop was Kyoto. So, uh, okay, and I put on my jacket and got my stuff and went out. And <laughs> I got halfway down the stairs and realized I had forgotten something on the Shinkansen because oh. I was reading your book and not paying attention. <laughs> and so I ran back up the stairs and the, the Shinkansen was still sitting there, but it was making that noise, that irritating siren, noise, yeah. right, that the doors were going to close. <laughs> so I ran up to the door and I put my foot onto the step, but I didn't go in because I didn't want to get stuck inside the Shinkansen and be taken to Tokyo. Because I had to meet you. <laughs> so, um, and then I waved down the line because, you know, I know that there's, a, you know, some guy from the... Yeah, there's a conductor watching. A conductor yeah. watching. And so then he runs over and I'm like, Wasure mono desu! Like, I've forgotten something. He's like, oh, go ahead. And they kept that alarm on the entire time <laughs> that I went in and got my omiyage, my oh. gift... And uh, came back out because I'd put it up on that on shelf the, up the there, but shelf, nothing yeah. else was there. So you're saying that you were so involved in reading Japantown right. that right. you forgot something on the train and then you had to go back. And so a whole Shinkansen filled with, filled with about 500 people <laughs> was waiting. That's right. Because you were reading the book as you <laughs> went right. back to get your, your fault. <laughs> I can, Absolutely. Oh, see. Okay. That was really That's an interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was really surprised that they actually held up the Shinkansen for me. They're polite that way. So they are yeah. because very, and they very, probably yeah. knew it's such a hassle once someone leaves something on it. And of course was it was your Omiyage who was <laughs> It was <up> my there. <laughs> So I couldn't just let it go. <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. I've never had anybody tell me that. I've had people tell me they they lost sleep because they've spent they or spent late night. They can't maybe. sleep or they well 
I've had any number of people saying, you know, I'm really mad at you, or they'd say, you know, I was sleepy for for the whole week I was reading your book because I stayed up way past my Mm -hmm. usual bedtime to keep reading and reading until I couldn't keep my eyes open, and I did that for five nights or three nights or whatever to have those kinds of stories. But I've never been responsible indirectly for for delaying a Shinkansen. (laughs) Well, you have now. That's a notch I can (laughs) add to my belt. That's well, good to know anyway what happens yeah. <laughs> when you do. And, of course, they always tell you as you leave, don't forget anything. I'm like, oh, I didn't think I was forgetting anything, but I wasn't even really paying attention, was I? <laughs> and on that note, we end the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Barry. You've been listening to the Books on Asia podcast, produced and edited by Michael Palmer. Logo by Alex Kerr. Sponsored by Stonebridge Press, publisher of fine books on Asia for over 30 years. They can be found at www.stonebridge.com. For more interviews, book reviews, and other features, visit the Books on Asia website at booksonasia.net.